Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Dr. Douglas Frank, who holds a BA in chemistry and a PhD in surface analytical chemistry. Dr. Frank specializes in the development of custom control and analytical solutions, and he has invented several instruments for surface optical characterization, precision force application, and soil analysis by means of portable electron microscopy and spectroscopy spectroscopy. A common thread in his work is the combination of precision motion with delicate measurement and the analysis of large amounts of data. He's a popular speaker in the areas of innovation and creativity, ethics and character, climate change, and currently COVID-19. Dr. Frank is chair of the math and science department and director of music at the Schilling School for Gifted Children, a school he helped to establish in the mid-1990s. Recently, Dr. Frank has gained notoriety for his modeling work on the COVID-19 pandemic. He has been making his work available to the public since January 1990, and his Facebook page, now called Follow the Data with Dr. Frank, has over 50,000 members and followers. Dr. Frank, welcome to Savage Minds. Could you tell us about who you are? Sure. Um, I'm Doug Frank. I'm a, a PhD scientist. I've been doing science aggressively for about 40 years. Um, I have about 60 scientific publications peer reviewed. Many of them are uh, invited articles and cover articles on the most prominent scientific journals in the world. So I'm a real scientist um, with real experience and, and I aggressively practice science, I like to tell people, which means that I follow the scientific method pretty rigorously in most of my work. I also own a small business where I design and manufacture custom scientific instruments. Many large corporations around the world have my machines in them, so I'm not allowed to talk too much about those. So what you're saying is that you work for Big Pharma and Bill Gates, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've done research in uh, pharmaceuticals, but that was many years ago during academics. Almost all of my, my uh, instrumentation and whatnot is not in the medical field. It's in the cleaning products or surface cleaning products fields. Um, bowling is a big, I'm allowed to talk about bowling because I do, uh, the bowling industry uses a lot of my devices because bowling is a surface sport. People don't realize that um, what happens in bowling mostly is because of the surface of the ball. So I have all kinds of surface analyzers. My PhD is in surface electrochemistry, a lot, a lot of words, but it basically means what I do, I'm an expert at what happens at surfaces. And it just so happens that the, the mathematics and the science that happens there is very similar to epidemiology. So I've also been on the side doing epidemiology for most of that 40 years. I've actually, since high school, since AIDS, I've been modeling and I'm a teacher as well. So I teach my students how to do that. And I routinely include um, my um, modeling. I teach them how to do modeling in real life. In fact, right now I'm modeling sunspots with my students, which is a nice uh, statistical thing. So it gives you an idea uh, in real life that I use this mathematics that I'm using to model the COVID in real life as well. It's a nor normal part of my life. So I'm a data geek. I love data. Give me lots of data. And I, and I like to figure out where I stand. You know, I came across your Facebook page because of a scientist back in February when I was flipping out about what was going on yeah. in Italy. Um, she said to look you up. So I started following you then. And what I really appreciate about your 
your tenor with people, your, your tone, your embrace of facts, is also this respect for them and for views that you interact with very politely, shall I say. Because there, <laughs> as you know, I say this past year has brought out all the epidemiologists of the world. I have yes, yes. a fake PhD in epidemiology. I should have you know. <laughs> And the knee bone is no, but you've seen, you know, you've seen the dynamics on, on social media where everyone now, I don't know, they somehow switch from, I forgot what the cause du jour was right before COVID, but you know, everyone had been an expert in whatever that mass media yes. was. And now everyone's an epidemiologist overnight, which I always find yes. funny. Um, so tell me, how did you get involved in first creating your Facebook page over COVID and how did you get involved in creating the models that you have created? Well, um, I, I, since I'm a teacher, I'm a, uh, the math and science department chair at the Schilling School for Gifted Children. And what I try to do is every year in every class, whether it's a science class or a math class, I always try to include at least one real world application. And I alternate year by year, just kind of depending upon what's going on in the world. Because I'm trying to engage, I have really super bright students and I don't wanna just merely teach them calculus. I also want them to see how calculus relates to the real world. I don't merely wanna teach them chemistry. I want them to understand how chemistry applies to all their, their life around them. So in addition, I always have this side stream of thought going on. And this year, normally I would have done, or no, no longer this year, in 2020, I would have been modeling the election with them because um, the election is a hot topic and they're very interested in that. And so I have them do all kinds of statistical models and Fourier transforming models and make a prediction. And then it's sort of fun because we track our predictions after we make them uh, and it engages them throughout the year in the topic. It's a lot of fun actually with my students. And it's not, you know, it's not an ego thing, you know, who's right, who's wrong. It's more about, can we learn the math? Can we make predictions? You know, what did the data tell us? Were we right? Were we wrong? Why were we wrong? Et cetera. They learn how to do that. Well, this show would have done the election, except that one of my students is from China. He's an exchange student. And he asked me last November, hey, Dr. Frank, my parents live near Wuhan, China, and they're having an epidemic there. Can we look at those data together? And so I said, well, sure. So I decided to do the epidemic instead of uh, the election this year. And what I like to teach my students is it's not a prediction unless you post it, unless you stick your neck out. You know, in science, part of the scientific method is you have a hypothesis and then you make a prediction and you do an experiment and then you do the experiment. If it comes out the way you predict, then you're probably right. Your hypothesis and your theory is probably right. If it's not right, that doesn't mean you're not a good scientist. It just means you're going to learn something. So then you go back and reevaluate your hypotheses, reevaluate your theories, reevaluate your theories, and then make a new prediction. And you just complete that cycle over and over again. So we started doing that and I started posting our predictions online, which is a nice way to sort of seal your prediction in an envelope and mail it to yourself. The nice thing about Facebook is everything is timestamped. So you put, you put up there what, you, what your predictions are. So I started putting up my predictions uh, in actually in January a year ago. And, um, but they were just kind of organically coming out of what we were doing with our students. And we were using the China data, the Wuhan data to guide our thinking, to guide our parameters. Uh, and then I was teaching them how epidemiology works and how to model that and whatnot. We were doing those. And then um, in, in about February or so, um, I was pacing, 
posting them on my personal web page. My, my personal Facebook page, which 5,000, um, there's a 5,000 limit on a personal Facebook page. It hit its limit and people were wanting to track. I had, didn't realize how popular it was to do this. And you know, right about that time, the media was going crazy and you know, the epidemics were starting to pick up throughout Europe. So uh, one of my parents started a page called Dr. Frank Models. And I started posting all of our models there. And the director of my school came to me and said, hey, Dr. Frank, um, we're supposed to take a group of students. I'm also the music director there. And um, I had taken a group of students to Vienna a few years prior and we won the choral tournament. And we were getting all tooled up to, to go to the Baltic States and enter a choral tournament there as well. Uh, and so she said, hey, what's going on? You know, we're supposed to leave April 1st. What's going on with the, what's in Europe with COVID? Should we still go? So uh, we changed our, uh, our class said, hey, here's a real life question. Let's answer this real life question. We did our modeling. We said, we predict that it's going to peak in Europe right about April 1st. So that's probably a bad idea for us to go on our trip. We contacted the parents. Um, the parents all came to the school and it's, it was ironic because the morning that the parents arrived uh, for this big, you know, 30 parents show up to school to, to kind of discuss our trip and why we're going to cancel it and whatnot. And um, the, that very morning, the World Health Organization announced that they predicted that it was going to peak about April 1st. So the parents were all proud of their students and, you know, proud of us that we had predicted that. And WHO came out with it a month later. So that was kind of how that did. And then, then my school director said, well, gee, Dr. Frank, what about our schools? Our governor is closing down our schools in our state of Ohio. Um, when should, when will they be ready to open up again? And so we said, okay, let's run the models. So we ran our models and we said about the middle of April, it will peak and it should be faded by the middle of May. So if, if the governor wants to open us up again, maybe middle of May, maybe we can still have graduation. But, um, I have a saying that you've seen me post on the page multiple times where, um, science and politics don't play well together. You know, you can use science and math to predict things. And those predictions can be accurate or inaccurate, but it's hard to predict politics, especially when when science and politics get mixed up, then it's a mess. So um, it, it was more about the political uh, ends, I think, why we we stayed shut down, because you could see the the uh, epidemic had faded appropriately. We could have been open. And it's interesting because right about that time. The European, from where you are, the European studies, they were doing contact tracing on the students over there. And the contact tracing also was confirming that, that COVID was not really affecting the young people much at all. In fact, kids, younger people don't catch it easily. And they didn't spread it easily. Of course, that's not what you hear in the media. The media is all, oh my gosh, we have asymptomatic transfer. And we got to protect our children and got to close the schools to protect the teachers and whatnot. Of course, the data, we're not saying that which is why I like following the data. The data guide your thinking the best. That doesn't mean you're always right, but if you follow the data, you're more likely to be accurate, more likely to know what's up. And it's been very obvious from the early days that the safest place on the planet to be is with the kids. <laughs> so I'm a teacher, I wanna be with my kids and they need their education and they need each other for their social nurture and social development. So. I hear you. It's been a long year for parents. <laughs> oh, yes, it has. So I wanted to ask you, if you could, then lay out some of the basic 
misconceptions that people have about the data or even misinterpretations of the data um, and also maybe the media misperceptions because we're getting a lot of what we believe to know from the media and from you know governments making certain actions yeah i think i learned this you know since i've been aggressively modeling this stuff for decades i've learned some things whenever this whenever the media reports on science you need to step away um Sci journalists, I have nothing against journalists. In fact, most of the time what I find is that they just don't know what's going on. You know, early on, I was pretty critical of what the media was reporting because it wasn't lining up with the data. But as I began to take interviews, I've had dozens of interviews with media people. Um, they, I find that they just don't know. I mean, journalism is not a scientific area. They don't understand the science. They don't understand the math. So when I sit down and explain to them what's going on, they're always surprised. And it's like, oh, we didn't know it was that way. And, um, you know, for example, when you typically hear a media report, well, they'll say, well, we're, there are a hundred reported new deaths today. Okay. Um, most people hearing that would assume, well, that means that a hundred people died today. But really, when you think about it, that can't be right that means they died sometime in the past and they're just getting reported now. And what, what I've found is when you actually look at when, if you say, look at the death certificates and find the date of death, it could be six months ago. It could be eight months ago. The record keeping is catching up. So you can't really use the reported data to evaluate where you stand. You have to look at where those deaths are assigned, which day, date of death. And then you can begin to understand what's actually going on. So that's the sort of thing that I've learned about the media. Now, that's that's the first thing most people don't understand. And the media, you know, I don't think they're malicious. I think they're trying to get clicks. They're trying to sell advertising. You know, which sells more? Wh which sells more? Oh, things are going along just fine. Or is if the headline instead says, you know, 100 new deaths today, which one causes people to tune in and click on it? Um, I, so I think there's sort of that. And, th and then there's another aspect. If you're an epidemiologist and let's say the government comes to you and says, tell us, epidemiologist, when is this thing going to be over and how much risk and what's the danger? And you run your traditional standard models on it. You'll find that there's a, a really bad possible scenario and a really not so bad scenario. And so you'll tell the government both scenarios. Um, but if you're a government person, you'll look at those two scenarios and say, well, let's hope it's the, the not the bad one. But what if it's the really bad one and that's the one that happens and I didn't act accordingly, then everybody will come to me and say, well, look, the epidemiologist told you it was going to be super bad and you didn't do anything. So you're out of here. So so what happens is epidemiologists tend to give the worst scenario because also then the epidemiologist, by giving the worst scenario, if if the government does mitigation and it improves it, they could say, whew, good idea. Good that you did mitigation, you know, see how it was effective. Um, if it comes out as bad as they predict, then they could say, wow, imagine how bad it would have been if you hadn't did mitigate. In other words, if everybody protects themselves by giving the worst case scenario, and then of course the media reports the worst case scenario. And, and there've been several studies on this. Um, if you're trying to get the public to comply with public health orders, you can act, there are several you can read the papers that are in the literature where they talk about how long fear works 
there's a limited amount of time fear will work. And so you, you notice in the media is that it cycles and it's every three or four weeks, it'll change topics. You know, first they're telling you, we got to protect our children. And then when that's debunked, by the time that's debunked, they've already got the next fear coming in, um, whether it, you know, asymptomatic transfer or, oh, the virus is mutating or, oh, um, you know, it, this is, um, uh, you know, whatever the latest scare du jour is. Um, and, and they kind of maintain it. So you'll notice there's a cycle in that. And on, on our page, we joke about it. We call it statistical whack-a-mole. Every time a, mole, a new statistical thing comes up, we pound it down. But by the time we pound it down, they've got the next scary thing emerging out of that already. So it gives you the idea. <laughs> so let's talk about then the way the buildup to um, the announcement of a pandemic happened. I mean, you were looking at Wuhan before yeah, any of us yeah. were, really. Yeah. What were you seeing early on? Oh, it was like, it was a perfect, ideal Gaussian epidemic until about halfway through. Then suddenly there was a, a discontinuity in the data. And that often happens during epidemics because what will happen is as things are tooling up, you you know, are ramping up during the epidemic, people are getting infections. You're kind of learning as it's happening too, because, you know, we haven't had an epidemic of, of COVID-19 before. So you're kind of learning as you go. And then about middle of the way, they said they redefined what they were going to count as um, COVID deaths. And that, that should sound familiar in America too. And so then there was a glitch in the data, but then they undid it. They said, no, we're not going to count those after all. And so it returned kind of a normal and it was just perfect little smooth Gaussian peak um, by a binomial distribution. And so our guidance to, to my students and I was, okay, this is behaving like a typical random spread epidemic. And we also were able to download at that time the data for the demographics. And it was clear that the older people were in danger and not the younger people. We actually put up graphs in February showing what the percentages were of risk based upon age, which by the way, that graph is still good a year later. Um, so, so the data we got from Wuhan was accurate in terms of the demographics risk. And it was, um, but it was very inaccurate, it turns out, um, in terms of the, the shape of the epidemic. But you know, you have to follow the data. And so then as I, we began modeling Italy, Italy, you're saying you're from Italy, I was actually doing research on Italy uh, as we were graphing the data for, for your area of the world. And for some reason in Italy, you guys are way more susceptible to flu epidemics annually. And scientists were already studying that and publishing that. And so the fact that, the fact that it looked like COVID was going to be worse in your country than in other European countries kind of fit the, the historical pattern that for some reason, whether you were gen genetically predisposed to it or there was something cultural, you know, I'm imagining, you know, because I have a romantic view of Italy, I'm imagining you guys having multi-generation household compounds and grandma and grandpa, it, it, grandma and grandpa are living with children. And so you have multi-generational, that's perfect for spreading it to your older folks. So, you know, maybe it's that, you know, I'm imagining you all sitting around smoking cigarettes. So, you know, <laughs> I, I'm being playful with you, but um, it, it seemed like multiple cultural and maybe genetic and maybe behavioral, um, you know, I'm imagining you all kissing each other all the time. Cause you know, the European way, of <laughs> uh, you know, I'm being playful, but you get the idea. There, yeah, 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 yeah. there are, there are reasonable 
explanations why it might be worse and why flu might spread worse in, in Italy and whatnot. So I didn't recognize it at first that my Wuhan data were misleading because then the next one of the next ones we did was Italy and Italy was worse, but it was supposed to be worse because it historically was worse. So I didn't quite catch on yet. But then as it began to spread to other countries and I noticed the, the new behavior of the epidemic, I, something's wrong with, with my, our approach. So we had to go back and revise our approach. But uh, our approach. But anyway, you see how what we do, we follow the data. We let the data tell us what to think, not the media reports. Exactly. Well, that's a, a great approach if you're living on a non-flat Earth, Earth, right? Um, yeah. But this is interesting that you mentioned the ki kissing because there have been reports uh, earlier in the year about multi-generational households and the spread of COVID in Italy. And yes. this made me think, okay, this is the huge difference because families do not live like this in Germany. I've lived in Germany. They yeah. live less like this in France, although more so than Germany and yeah. similar to Italy, Spain. Also similar to Italy with the kissing, uh, France, Spain, but also Argentina. So I'm wondering if someone could do a cross-cultural kissing study of the <laughs> transmission, yes. because this is not, you know, um, it's not secondary, really, in a way. But my question now is about sure. how you, you've come across this, <clears throat> this huge following of people who are interested in information. From time to time, yeah. disagreements yeah. occur. Um, watch my Facebook page since, well, forever, <laughs> because there's been a lot of debate, myself included. Uh, sure. Last February, I was like, everyone has to lock down. Like, I was really pro-lockdown because I didn't know what this was. None of us right. did. We were just told there was this thing. Sure. I Better thought, safe than sorry. Sure. Yeah, exactly. I thought eubominic plague masks were the next step. Sure. As soon as the information, thanks to you and others, I read, because I now... I'm working as a journalist. I read and read and read, and it became clear yes. within a few weeks this was not the plague, and yes. it was very clear who the demographic was that was most affected by this. Yes. So, why is it that countries like okay, you've seen the UK has shut down for six weeks, and now it's announced uh, perhaps three months. Children are out of school. Why are governments following this? And I also have to footnote this with. Back in February, when I was having my little Facebook freak out and telling everyone, lockdown, you know, I wasn't <laughs> as bad as Boris Johnson saying, you're all going to die, but almost. Yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, I noticed that the Imperial College um, professors were pushing for what Sweden did. And when I read that, for, I the, was for her out. immunity, that's what Sweden exactly. did. Exactly. They said, now, we're not going to shut down. We just want you to protect your elder people and use good hygiene. The targeted protection model, which is yes. what the Great Barrington Declaration has also yes. opted for. Yes. Yes. So targeted protection, that yeah. was an option. It quickly went off the table when the you know, British freaked out over that option and yes. said, we're not granny killers. You know, it's always the granny killers. Yeah, so right. can you explain the exegesis of this? How did we move from unknown virus, let's lock down, most of us, reasonably minded, of course, were like, okay, this sucks, but we'll do it. Yes. Thinking two weeks, that's what I thought. I thought two weeks, three weeks top, because that's yeah. enough time, right? Yeah. I was what telling happened? Dr. Schilling, the director of my school, about a month is reasonable. And I think everybody's willing for a month or so. Okay, let's shut down. Let's protect granny. Let's, let's do this. And I think 
everybody was on board with that. And it, it, it actually kind of had a positive momentum to it. Let's all work together and beat this thing, right? What, what I've learned over the years, I'm, I'm almost 60, so I've, I've lived a few decades, I've seen a few things happen, is I don't necessarily think that there are a group of, you know, old white men with cigars in a back room somewhere scheming conspiracies for the world. I think what actually happens is certain things happen and then they are naturally reinforced by our systems and, and fear is a strong motivator. And if you give politicians power, they don't give it up. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's not new, right? Just read, read all the founding documents of, you know, around the world of all the different countries. And if you read the constitution of the United States, the Federalist Papers, for example, they're, they're terrified to give the government power. Whenever you give government power, it, you know, they become criminal. And so I think what happens is we all sort of willingly relinquished temporarily our freedoms by saying, let's protect, let's protect our grannies and let's protect each other. But the problem is we gave power to the government in doing so, and they're not ready to give it back up. So I think that's kind of generated a cycle where politicians, and, and I'm not saying politicians are evil, I'm saying they're going to choose what protects them. And better safe than sorry is a choice, a political choice, not a scientific choice. The science says, yeah, um, you know, like in Sweden, the, the, the science said, this is a flu, uh, not a flu, this is a virus. It's going to have its own behavior. We've never stopped a virus in the history of the, of the planet. Instead of fighting the virus, let's let it do its thing like it's going to do. And let's protect the people that are vulnerable until we have herd immunity. That was sort of their strategy. And that's a scientific approach, isn't it? But you notice that that strategy, they're one of the rare countries in the world that chose the scientific strategy. Fear and politics controlled it the rest of the time. Does that kind of answer your, your question? Yes. Um, but I'm also interested in this how governments like Sweden, I mean, we know why Sweden made, I mean, most of us do, who've been reading yeah. about why Sweden made that choice for not locking down. And some people today will say, well, they are locking down now. Well, not completely true because they've never gone for the full lockdown model. Right. But the UK, UK quickly jumped to a lockdown yeah. model from the, they went from zero to a hundred. Um, yes. Obviously, Italy did because of the, vastly, uh, you know, just the high the rates of deaths and it was just yes. uh, advancing so rapidly. Yes. Um, and then other countries followed in suit. Now, given that there is such, you know, the concept of targeted protection, which yeah. has been used in the past. This is what a lot of people don't realize. They don't realize that lockdown's the new thing, not targeted protection. So Exactly. You're when I read re media reports criticizing the Great Barrington Declaration, I'm a, I'm a bit alarmed that yes. people criticizing it to include some scientists are not mentioning that targeted protection is the historical norm, not lockdown. Right. Can right. you describe what targeted protection would look like? Well, for example, we know that uh, I, you can tell even from the China data, 15 out of 16 older people who catch it and die from it, have a severe comorbidity. So it automatically tells you who you need to protect. You need to protect older people who have some kind of severe comorbidity. So 
Pretend you've got a population in a rest home or congregate living situation. You know you need to protect that situation. Now, the problem is, is those people require a lot of care. So, and then a lot of intimate care, right? They often need time help with their hygiene. They need help with their food. And that's intimate contact kind of care. So what I would, and it was funny because if you were on the page, you even saw some of these discussions. I was saying, why don't we set up an island somewhere Take a bunch of younger people who are young and healthy, who don't go home every day, right? They don't have families. So that's not like, not like daddy has to come home and be with his family. These are younger, maybe college students who can take a month, for example, take a month off from school. A lot of colleges are shutting down or maybe just younger people who have, who need a good job. And we could, they could all, I'm exaggerating this, but it gives you the idea. They could all live on an island together and have all the intimate care that the older people need provided by kids that are not constantly mixing with the population. And then the rest of the country, and of course, as I point out, this is an exaggeration. So we take our older vulnerable people, plus some healthy younger people, we put them all on an island together so everybody gets the care they need. And then the rest of the country has a massive spin the bottle game. <laughs> where, where we, we, I don't know, do you know what spin the bottle? It's, it's, oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, yes. I know. So, so the rest of the country essentially has a chicken box party. And yeah. And then, and then, and the problem with that approach is yes, some people will still get sick and die from it unanticipated. You know, they had unanticipated comorbidities or a particular bad case. But overall, then the number of deaths would be lower. Not, I'm being playful, but that's the idea. You do, you protect the people that are the most vulnerable, and then you let the rest of the people um, let the chips fall where they may. And, 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 that's difficult to do as a politician. It's hard to say, yeah, we're going to protect these people, but not these people. But you know, there are ways around that. You could, um, you could have people choose how they want to live, and you could have communities that are protected, where you just have really, you know, gated communities where you are really careful about who goes in and out. And that then it's not a shutdown. It's not a lockdown. It's isolation. And quarantines that's that's the oldest story in the book in terms of epidemic uh, epi, um, epidemics that's the way they've worked throughout the years so right well yeah the word comes from the 40 days that people were put and yes. and items from ships were put on an island to wait for whatever substances they believed at the time to exist on those items to sit there so that they you would just be... taught me some etymology i appreciate that quarantine yeah. qua yeah it's 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 40 days. Oh, very good. I didn't know that. Thank you for that etymology. <laughs> no, well, uh, I, I read up, I read everything in, uh, in March, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, look, you know, the, the, the people who are at the most risk from COVID yes. are from what age? The 15 out of 16 people would be over 65 or yeah, over something 70? Like that. Yeah, yes. Okay. Uh -huh. And, 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 when I did the statistics early on, when you were tracking my page, you could tell in real time, I was tracking what was actually happening in the US. And at first, I just picked a round number because that's what you do in science, you do like orders of magnitude. I said, for every 100 people that are infected, 30 of them would show symptoms, six of them would be um, severe symptoms and have to go to the hospital and one person would die. So it was 100 to one. One out of every 100 people were gonna die from it. And that was the way it was behaving in the United States in early on. In Italy, it was worse than that. Um, but then over time, it evolved um, closer to about for every 140 people that became infected, that 
about 30 would show symptoms, about six would go to the hospital and one would die. So those were the numbers that they were converging to over time. Uh, that's that. So, but that one person though, that would pass away almost always had some other comorbidity that was affecting them. And, you know, it, people don't just die from a virus um, at random. Usually there's a, they're weaker in, for some reason. They're unhealthy in some other way. They have high blood pressure or they have um, heart condition to begin with or, or maybe diabetes or something like this. Well, you mentioned you've done research. Um, you've used these models for AIDS research in the past. And yeah. um, I did a lot of work on AIDS actually in the 1990s. Oh, and wow. one thing that was interesting to me is how when people were dying of AIDS, you know, it, people would say, oh, he died of AIDS. Well, of course, no one died of no AIDS. No one died of AIDS. No. Right? AIDS is the syndrome, right? And yes. they would die of and I mean, the deaths from AIDS stem uh, from many different uh, oh, yeah. factors. Sure. And so people would die from any number of diseases because of what AIDS ravaged upon the body. Yes, it depletes, it, it, AIDS, yes. Yeah, AIDS depletes your immune system. So then you die at whatever adventitious infection you get. So you can die of a cold, you can die of the flu, you can die of pneumonia, you die of many possible things because your immune system is no longer functioning. That's what AIDS is. So what actually, you know, if, if you fall off of a cliff, you know, and you hit the ground and die, you know, what did you die from? Did you die from, from a slippery pavement or did you die from your head being smashed when it hit the ground, right? What's the cause of death? And it's the same way with COVID did you die from COVID or did you die from complications due to COVID? So there, there, um, it depends, you know, if you are already weak and then you catch COVID and die, you know, what killed you? Was it, was it the COVID that killed you or was it that just the final straw? So there's a gray area in there. And, um, over time, um, during the epidemic, the medical community and the world health organization began to call, Anybody who has COVID and dies, died from COVID. They, they equate those two, they conflate those. And that's, I think that that doesn't match most people's understanding of what dying from COVID would be. I think that's over the top. We have that problem with hospitalizations too. For example, if you were to just go, let's say you were to scratch your knee and need to go to the hospital to get stitches, but you had COVID a month ago. Well, what'll happen is you go into the hospital, they give you a test and you test positive for COVID. But you're not going to the hospital because of COVID. You're going because you scratched your knee. But then they have to admit you as a COVID patient. And they have to treat you like a COVID patient, even though you don't have COVID. So it gets reported to the media as a COVID hospitalization. And, you know, let's say I didn't, instead of just scratching your knee, let's say it had been a car accident that you had died from. You were, and you died from it, you, COVID death, even though you didn't die from COVID, you died from the car accident. So there's, there's a gray area in there where, um, uh, your cause of death is kind of too often attributed to COVID when really it's something else. Like we're coming into the flu season right now. Huh, this is when the people die typically in the U.S. I, I don't remember. And, and, and in Italy, this is when you guys, the increased deaths due to cold and flu, dramatic increase every year. Um, in the U.S., it's 30 to 60,000 a year normally die from, from uh, flu. So as we're coming into this time, if you were to look at the flu statistics in the United States, for some reason, we're just not dying of flu anymore. But there are a lot of COVID deaths 
where when you test that patient, they may test positive for COVID, but they are testing positive for flu too. So it makes you wonder, hmm, are these people dying from the flu or are they dying from COVID? Well, that's my next question, actually, about the reporting mechanisms. You discussed yeah. earlier on about the time lapse between date on death certificate and what we're seeing. For instance, yeah. when I go to the infamous website with all the daily recorded deaths, um, yes. Worldometer, or is that called? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I use that I, too. Yeah. I've come to learn exactly which countries have slower reporting on the weekends, for instance, yep. and yep. even which ones have a quicker reporting on Saturday, but slower on, on Sunday and Monday, for instance. Yep. So I've, I've yep. been like studying that site. That, but I have interviewed uh, some of the <clears throat> uh, creators of the Great Barrington Declaration. And as well, yeah. I've, I've interviewed Sucharit uh, Bhakti, a German excuse me, a German professor at the Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz, who said that a large part of the problem and how we discuss who's testing positive or not is exactly what a positive test means. He likened this to taking a drunk driving test. Yes. Like, and not a drunk driving, I'm sorry, it makes it sound like we're going to go and get our license no. drunk. But you know, when the police stop you yes. and you have to do a breathalyzer, have yes, you right, had right. a half a glass of wine or did right. you down a bottle of Jack Daniels? Right. And he explained this quite clearly to yes. us. Now I'm wondering, are we seeing that reflected in the data from country to country and I'm sorry, yes. very uh, complex question here, but um, the countries that are reporting differently, how is this affecting the data? It is dramatically affecting the data. And it's not even country to country. In America, it's state to state. A lot is controlled by the politics and the economics of it. For example, early on, when the epidemic was first starting, around the world, we only really had one good way to test. And it was with a PCR test that took like a week or two to get the results back. And it was a, a fairly accurate test, which is typical of academics. Academic people like to use extremely accurate, though time-consuming things. The problem is, is it's not very good for monitoring an epidemic. It's not very good for knowing where you stand when you don't get the data for 10 days or two weeks. That's, that's a problem, right? You, you need to know where the infections are so you can quarantine the right people and whatnot. So early on, that's the way the testing was going on in, around the world. It's just not a very good method. So they came up with a faster test, uh, a faster PCR test. It only took two or three days to do. The problem with that test is that it, the sensitivity of it depends on the lab and depends on what you're looking for. So for example, in the PCR test that, you, that we're supposed to use, what they do is they're looking for a very small number of molecules. So they, they'll rub your, the swab in your nose and they'll find, they'll collect a few of the molecules and then they'll amplify it. Think of it, the easy way to explain that to most people is just think of it, put it in a Petri dish, this is the way you would do bacteria. Put it in a Petri dish, grow the culture, isolate it, put it in another Petri dish, grow the culture, and you do that over and over again. You amplify the, the number of molecules so that that way you can finally detect them. And the person who invented the PCR test was recommending that about 30 times, 30 cycles, that's called. If you do about 30 cycles, then you'll be able to tell whether a person had um, COVID or not, because that you will have had enough molecules to detect. Well, if you were really, if you were wanting to get a lot more positive results, all you'd have to do is instead of doing 30 cycles, you could do 35 cycles or 40 cycles or some in, in Ohio, there were some labs that were doing 43, 44 cycles. 
So the problem with that, though, is that you're detecting people who really never caught it. Maybe they just came into contact with it, not even live infections. So the problem with testing is that if one state might be super um, uptight about it and super anxious and want to have very sensitive testing, whereas another state may say, nah, 30 cycles is enough for us. So if you compare state to state, one state might look like it has less COVID than the other, but really they might have the same. It's just a different testing protocol. So that's why on my page, I've been telling people from the very beginning, and I learned this by the way, from the AIDS epidemic, that testing is the absolute wrong way to track the epidemic. It's not comparative region to region. It's not comparative even within itself, because you'll, even within a single state or a single country, you'll have multiple kinds of testing taking place. Now the problem is even worse because they've come out with this super fast um, antigen test. It's uh, Abbott Labs came up with it. It takes about 15 minutes. You do it yourself at home. It's a little card you put your, it's kind of like getting a, a do-it-yourself pregnancy test. The problem with that test is it generates lots of false positives. So you, it artificially inflates the numbers. So testing is really a very sketchy way to track what's actually going on. So I've been telling people from the beginning, don't use testing to evaluate our progress. Instead, use the number of deaths. You know, it's hard to fake a death. A person is dead or they're alive. And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be callous about it. But, right, right, right. But when people are dying, you know, that people are really dying and it's not ambiguous. Um, and you can look at the total numbers of deaths and get a pretty good idea. Now, even that number is somewhat vulnerable because... Um, about halfway through the epidemic, somewhere in the middle of April, the CDC redefined what a death, a COVID death was. And so a lot of states, a lot of countries were going back into their previous records and reassigning causes of deaths based upon the new criteria. So even deaths numbers are somewhat suspicious, but it, it, they're far more reliable than cases, especially when you're comparing region to region. Well, when you, you speak about how deaths are recorded and you use the example of a scraped knee or someone you know yeah. uh, a journalist uh, last year spoke about you know if you get in a car accident and you're COVID positive then you yeah. died of COVID. I mean uh, yeah. people are pointing out the absurd as, yes. and others are saying well those are you know random cases. Uh, are they? Because when yeah. we look at countries like Germany that until recently had a very low mortality rate compared to its neighbors Yes. Um, I did begin to wonder around April or May if Germany's yes. numbers were actually being assessed in the same way that Italy's, France's or Portugal's, for instance. And they're probably not assessed in the same way. And that's the point I was just making. You know, and that's the problem when politics and science gets mixed, right? Germany, I, I don't know for the fact, but say Germany is trying to say, see, our way of doing things is better because we have a lower number of COVID deaths. But maybe they're just not assigning them the same way. And so... How do you know? You know, you need to look in the details. Devil's in the details there. Exactly. Um, and you spoke also about uh, the asymptomatic transfer. Now, yeah. can we clarify this for the Nine Signs listeners out there? Um, sure. What does that mean? And what does that mean for, let's say, you and I? Yeah. We're in our 50s, both of us. Yeah. Versus our grandparents or our parents. Well, Let's say that you and I um, are, uh, we go to a ball game and the people sitting next to us infect us, you and I. 
So we go home, we go to our house and we don't notice. But about three days from now or so, the virus will have had a chance to multiply in our bodies and we'll begin to show symptoms. Our, 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 our immune system will be reacting to it. So we'll begin to show symptoms. And you know, you know how it is when you catch a flu, um, you start to get a fever, you start to feel grungy, you know, a little, you want to sleep more, your you know, your nose starts to run, you start to cough, things like that. So your symptoms begin to come in. Now, when you begin to show symptoms, that's usually when you start being able to spread it because you're going to cough, you're going to sneeze, you're, you have enough virus available to spread. It's called viral load. Um, uh, where I, enough of the virus has to leave me and go to somebody else to infect them. You know, if I just, if you put one molecule on their arm, they're probably not going to get infected. But if you put a million molecules in their nose, they will. There's a viral load that's called how you need to have a sufficient infection to kind of catch it. So um, usually the symptoms are not apparent until about the fourth day or so. Then you start going, hmm, am I sick or not? And you know, you work, I work, it, you know, you how you know how it is. Some mornings you wake up and you don't feel so hot, but you know what? You got to go to work. So if if you're on the fourth day after that infection, and you go to work and you hang out with your colleagues, you might infect them, um, and you're you're only barely symptomatic at that point. And but maybe by the fifth day, you're starting to say, "Man, I really feel bad. I'm staying home." Um, so now you're not spreading it anymore, are you? So the the when people talk about asymptomatic transfer, what they're really talking about are those first few days, maybe day two, three, four, where you don't really feel like you have any symptoms, you don't really notice any symptoms, yet you might still be contagious. The, the thing is, is that to be contagious, you need to have a lot of symptoms. I mean, that's what makes you contagious. So I think that the asymptomatic transfer thing is more of a, has been more of a fear technique to try to get people to self-quarantine, to try to stop the spread. Um, even though it's really not scientifically valid, people don't really spread asymptomatically. I remember a study coming out where they were trying to say, oh yeah, children can really spread it asymptomatically. And that was all bogus. It was not good science at all. We already knew kids don't catch it easily. They don't spread it easily. You know, one of the reasons they don't spread it easily is because they don't have very severe symptoms because symptoms result in a lot of, uh, result in a higher probability of transfer. So, that's the idea of asymptomatic transfer. I think it's, you know, if you're a news person, you can say, oh, we can all spread it asymptomatically. You know, then everybody runs home and hides. That's, that's kind of one of those fear techniques rather than necessarily a good scientific point of view. So would a person who's asymptomatic and quote unquote spreading it to their grandparents, would that affect their grandparents severely? Because we've seen reports in the media saying that you no. have to have a lot of viral load. So can someone who yes. has an asymptomatic tr uh, transfer of the yeah. virus yeah. actually give enough to make their grandmother or grandfather sick? Yeah, it, and that's one of those um, quantitative things. You know, it depends how sick you are. If uh, we cared for uh, my mother-in-law in our home for a year and a half, and, and if, if she passed away before COVID, thank God, but if, if she had been living with us during COVID, we would have been careful. You know, older people need a lot of intimate care. So if you're sick, you shouldn't be hanging with them. You, and you should be watching your symptoms and, watch, and, and being careful. Um, if you're asymptomatic, it's not likely you're going to spread to them. You're, you, the viral load would be low.
and you know having younger people care for older people is that's why i made that joke earlier on let's have the college students take care of the older people because the college students are the ones with they're the strongest they're the healthiest they're mature enough to do the kind of intimate care that is required um yet they're the least likely to spread it so that's that's why I use that. That's the best way to care for an older person is with a younger person. Uh, because even if the younger person catches it, usually their symptoms are less severe. So guess what? They're less likely to spread it because they'll have a lower viral load uh, transfer. So, you know, that's kind of that targeted care idea. Short of having islands available to us, but that has, <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking though, you know, cause I've yeah. been really angry about the lack of response by governments to enact what would have been a targeted protection, even after the initial lockdown? It's been exactly the opposite. I mean, look what happened in New York. When New York was having their, I mean, they had a horrible epidemic in New York. And I mean, if you think about it, those people, you know, half the population is riding the subway to work every day or something insane like that. And they're packing in the, the I mean, they're packing in close contact with each other twice a day for 15, 20, 30 minutes, I don't know, however long they're on the subway. It's a perfect vector for spreading, spreading the virus. So that happened quickly, and you could see it in the slope of the epidemiological curve. It was a rapid infection, very thoroughly infested. And so what happened is their hospitals filled up quickly, right? Rapidly. So they were running out of beds. So the governor or the mayor announced the mayor announced that rest homes had to accept patients from the hospitals. And if you think about that, it's exactly the wrong thing. You're taking people that are sick or suspect sick out of the hospital and putting them with the most vulnerable population in the rest home and congregate care situations. So that was exactly the wrong thing. And consequently, they had massive numbers of infections and deaths in rest homes because you basically created the vector from the sickest people right into the most vulnerable people. So that would be an example of where government failed dramatically in that situation. A better situation would have been to set up like a, a halfway house where you had, you could take people out of the hospital and put them in a in-between situation, not back with the original most vulnerable people. Of course, it's easy to sit, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking today and say that was a huge mistake and whatnot. When you're in the middle of an epidemic and people are dying aggressively like they were in New York, you know, yeah, I'm not trying to place fault or blame. I'm just looking at what actually happened, and that was a horrible mistake. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. It's important that we do assess bad and good practices and then advance from that, right? Because that is yeah. also part of the science in terms of a more pragmatic approach on the ground from even urban planners. You know, I'm glad I you recall said that. I recall back in the day, you know, this was maybe uh, 15 years ago when I was visiting my family in Gujarat and they were talking about the new highway that was being built. And one of my cousins said, well, one of the things they have to look at is the transmission of HIV. And I looked at him and I'm like, what does HIV have to do with the highway? And he says, truckers. And I was like, oh. And, and I was thinking, wow, this is really smart planning, right? Um, we're not, we didn't have that kind of clarity 
in the early days of COVID. But we never had that kind of clarity now. I mean, I'm pretty angry, aside from, you know, writing about this, and I'm a person, and I'm quite infuriated by the fact that very few governments have actually made the connection between our cultural habits and patterns and transmission. I mean, this is just 101. I mean, this is why you have people not just in the hard sciences involved in virus mitigation, but you have people in the social sciences. Why was not more done? I yes, ask myself yes. constantly, right? Yeah, because, I think that's a brilliant. Go ahead. But you mentioned the, the subway example. There yeah. are so many examples of this. And, you know, I've yes. been screamed at, look at my wall on my, right. you know, on Facebook. People yeah. are like, but you said, it. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, back in February, I said we should lock down to give science the time. We I would have said the science, same thing. We yeah. give science the time. We know what yeah. the science is saying. Lockdown yes. is now proving to be inhuman. And I mean in terms of people who have treatable cancers are being given death sentences. I personally know of three myself since September yes. alone. Yes. We are having other forms of disease not diagnosed because people yep. are fearful of even going yes. to their GPs. I yeah. mean, this is having a huge knock-on effect. As you know, there have been peer-reviewed studies on this as well. I mean, we have the science oh, yeah. to show that this is killing people. Absolutely no doubt about that. I, they're called excess deaths. I've done multiple posts on this. Just a simple, the simplest, most obvious example is, is in our rest homes. Because we've isolated all these old people in an attempt to protect them, we're actually killing them. Um, the number of Alzheimer's deaths in the United States, I'm familiar with those numbers, for example, there's an average number of people who die from Alzheimer's dementia in America. It's pretty normal. Well, that number is 30,000 higher this year. Now, that doesn't mean we just had an epidemic of Alzheimer's dementia. It means we have 30,000 people that died way sooner than they were supposed to because we didn't care for them properly. I mean, it's, that's an obvious excess death situation. You mentioned people that are dying of diagnosable, treatable cancers. Why? Because they're not going to the hospital getting their screenings. That number is like 20,000 in the United States. When you add up all the numbers of deaths, excess death, these are data that are available from the CDC. This is not me making this up. It's huge. It's something like, okay, let's say you have 300,000 deaths due to COVID. You have 100,000 deaths due to the way we've not treated people who need treatment. So it's, it's not insignificant. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing you talked about was the science. The science, it's funny because since I've done all 50 states in the United States, I've been tracking them. Some states do shutdowns and lockdowns, some don't. I can compare state to state and guess what? Lockdowns, no difference. Okay. You know, I shouldn't say no difference. Neg statistically, not discernible differences. Uh, it, we mentioned uh, uh, Sweden. Sweden has about the same population as my home state, Ohio. And guess what? We're coming out to be about the same, just a little bit different timing. So, but Sweden stayed open. We didn't. So what was the benefit of the lockdown? Not good. Another beautiful example of not using the science is in Ohio, they've been using a curfew. They're making everybody go home early from bars about 10 o'clock or so. And, but yet the science, they, they commissioned a study. They did a, um, a study of all the bars and restaurants in Ohio. They found that there were almost no spread of, the, of COVID through bars and restaurants. So actually those are pretty safe places to be. So by forcing people to leave early, like on a night when there's a big ball game, a big soccer game or a big um, football game or something, 
and they, and you're in the middle of the game, what do people do? They congregate in homes afterwards because they want to finish the game together. That's actually the worst situation. It would be better, and by the science, to keep them together in the bars and restaurants where good hygiene and proper procedures are maintained. So you're right. The governments are not following the science. That's why I was saying to you earlier, politics and science don't play well together. The political objectives are different than the scientific ones. The, the political objectives are protect yourself. In other words, they, they, they make choices which protect them from later being um, accused of inaction or something like that. And government also, once they get power, they don't like giving it up. So you have all these things su supporting the same direction and um, they kind of coalesce and compound in the wrong direction. Well, aside, yes, and in addition to what you were saying about bars and restaurants, if you have a yeah. curfew at 10 and people really want to be out, you're going to yeah. have loads of people in all over. Imagine cities like London and New York, where yes. they're leaving these curfewed places and going yes. into mass transit together instead of scaled. Oh, exactly. It's, it's exactly the wrong thing that you want <laughs> all at once. Whereas if you said it could be open till two in the morning, then people just start gradually leaving and it's much more sparse. That would be that's less transmission. So you're right. The, the science, the science is not, the government doesn't follow the science. In places like, you know, the Mediterranean countries, not just Italy, where people are living in multi-generational homes. One yeah. thing that struck me as wrong-minded in Italy was the government this summer, wait for it, told everyone to go on vacation and gave them bonuses to do so. Although the vacation money was only for in-country. Not one project emerged to train people in the care of the elderly, to give mm -hmm. jobs to Italians who are struggling mm -hmm. to survive, and they were before COVID. Yes. Not one project to move grandma with, in with her yes. also elderly cousins. Italians, yes. just some facts here, because this is shocking. They are probably one of the highest home-owning populations on the planet. 80% of Italians own a home. And of that 80%, huge chunk have two, three, four, five. So we're talking about a country with elderly and everyone can, you know, say, oh, it's so sad what's happened there. But this was entirely preventable in a country like Italy, yes. where the government yes. could have said, everyone who has second homes and that you live with elderly parents, we need to have this plan. I mean, they might not have had to press it as an, an obligation, but to make suggestions and to offer not vacation bonuses but moving bonuses and saying to families we know you want to be with your aunt uncle grandfather but if you care about this person you need to move them in with and for not being socially isolated consider that he moves in with his brother or brother-in-law or whatever and yes family feuds will persist but let's you know do it this let's would protect have grandma to, exactly this would have actually protected grandma Yes. And this would have allowed for societies to flourish. And now I have to bracket all this by saying I am a, I'm very on the left here. And one thing that strikes me is I see people on all, all sectors of politics talking about the economy shut down. And ironically, a lot of my cohorts on the left, when they hear economy, they're hearing capitalism needs to go forth. When in fact, that's not what a lot of us are saying. We're saying people right. need to eat. They need to pay yes. bills, and actually they need the mental health of seeing other people. Beautiful. One example of what I've suffered through, aside from watching my children suffer through lockdown, was that when I had to do shopping during lockdown, 
I noticed that my eyesight long distance suffered and it still suffers because we're in a house where, you know, the biggest room is maybe four meters wide or something, you know, like, or no more, I'm sorry, I'm exaggerating, uh, uh, eight meters wide. So if you're living, you know, in conditions that you're not having to exercise your eyesight, that too uh, will have a ramification. Let's not even add how many yeah. of us have gained a little weight this past year because I, of lack of exercise. I've Me gained, too. yep. Mm -hmm. Yep, mm -hmm. yep. And it's like, how is this possible? So I'm, you know, I've been in my mind, I didn't come up with your island predicament, but I did come up with others. And I thought, okay, why hasn't, you know, let's say the governments of Italy, Spain, and France said, yeah. we'll, you know, use your second homes to everyone who uses their second home for their elderly, uh, who earns under this amount of money, we'll pay for these yeah. fees. We'll do that. Tax breaks, whatever. Nothing yeah, right. happened, even edging towards a, such a solution. And I'm not, you know, a conspiracy theorist. I do not think like you that a bunch of white men in a room are trying to, you know, <laughs> right. um, yeah. have us all locked Smoky down forever. Room. I yeah. do think, as you called it, the scare du jour played yeah. a larger role in this yeah. than most of us would like to believe. In fact, I hate to say it, but I think it's going to take years for our society to process what we allowed ourselves to be put through. Honestly. I think you're spot on. Yeah. And, and the damage to our children is, is going to we're producing a bunch of neurotic children that are going to take decades to clean up it. There are other consequences in America. Um, the, the suicide, teen suicide is fourfold what it usually is. And that's right now. So, you know, there that's not insignificant. You, those are beautiful young lives that we are losing because the way we're addressing this. I, I'm. I'm a proponent for transparency and op and and and, uh, and um, optimism. You know, I would want to get in front of the people and say, "Look, this is a horrible thing. This is not fun. We're, people we love are dying. Let's. What can we do positive to protect Granny? Let's work together. Let's find solutions together. And and uh, I, one of my uh, examples of this is um, uh, in America, a lot of the colleges closed, and so the students were going home. And if you think about this, that's exactly the wrong thing. You put all these students together from around the country, gathering in, in congregate settings, they all make each other sick, and then you send them home. <laughs> and that's when they're going to go make grandma sick, huh? So what should, one of my former students uh, was off to college, and he came home, and he self-quarantined in the basement for 14 days because his mother has a comorbidity, and he wanted to protect her. Now, see, that was a family working together. They were they were acknowledging the risk. They he came home, you know, they, everybody, and then he can be intimate and close with his parents, and they don't have to worry about it. That would be working together as a country. So when we're sending everybody home for the holidays, that's that's dangerous, isn't it? So people need to be aware. So there, if the education is there, I think we'll do a better job protecting. And I think that's what you're talking about. You're saying there, the government is having these mandates or lack of mandates without instructions, without guidance, without. Um... And then the other thing you're talking about with livelihoods, I think um, the it's not just our emotional health that's damaged; it's also our economic health, and they're intimately connected. You know, there, there are thousands of mom and pop stores that are going broke. And that doesn't just damage them financially. That's their whole life they put into that little store or, or that little bakery or that little restaurant. And by the way, they have employees now that are out of work. 
that are, or, or, or you know, in, in, in Ohio, for example, they've got the situation where you can do takeout, but you can't dine in in some places. Well, they say, well, yeah, well, we'll help our local restaurants. We'll dine in, we'll do takeout. Except, wait a minute, how do waiters and waitresses make their money? From tips. So that's, you're damaging the life, the, the, not just the economic health, but, you know, the waiter or the waitress isn't doing their normal thing. The musician isn't playing in the corner on the piano. The, the people aren't living their gifts. So there's an, a whole malaise, a whole emotional malaise, an economic malaise, all these physical malaise, because we're all in worse shape. So I don't think it's just the economics. I think the shutdown is hugely damaging on multiple levels and, and scientifically not justified. Well, certainly, uh, in addition, the emotional exchanges yeah. that we need as humans to interact to include my seeing your face, my um, yes, my my whole take on this is I remember the early days of lockdown when I would make those weekly grocery runs that, that, that yes. I just hated, but I make yeah. the run <laughs> and uh, I live above a pharmacy and I saw the faces of the elderly and they looked petrified yes and even just through their eyes i could see it but a lot of times then yes. i'll see you know someone will almost bump into me at the shop with their cart and they'll say sorry and they can't see that i'm smiling meaning i normally yeah, because your mask is hiding it exactly yes. and yeah. then i worry about my kids growing up in this darth vader society mm. and yes. i just thought i even joked about just why should i wear a mask i'll get a darth vader halloween mask and run around yeah. doing that at least have some yeah. fun but yeah. we are we are not discussing the quality of life that is being mm. allowed. And I spoke yes. with a wonderful British philosopher, um, Heather Brunskill-Evans, who spoke about the quality of life. And mm. I think that these are ethical arguments that we must yeah. take, aside from politics in tandem with the science. Because yes. when you talk about, let's say, Alzheimer's, yeah. you said... We have 30,000 more than usual. These are, it's, it's, a, it's, it, it's, it's tens of percents higher than normal because those people are being denied the intimate contact they need. <clears throat> Just having a heartbeat is not living. They need somebody to be with them every day and to explain to them what confusion and dementia they're going through there you know they need somebody to say you know it's you're confused because you have this disease but we love you and we're caring for you and by the way here's some snuggles and some hugs you know, it's one of the things i have a, a special needs daughter her name's nelly she's 23 years old and she has down syndrome and i cannot tell you how valuable she is to me because every day she wants to come and snuggle with me she wants to kiss me. She wants to rub my feet. She wants to tickle and wrestle and have physical contact. That's the way she is. That is so healthy for me. I can't imagine my life without contacting other people. Um, and so I have a, I'm fortunate. I have a built-in emotional, physiological nurturing that takes place for me every day, but not everybody has that. Imagine some granny living by herself. And her grandkids are afraid to visit her. That poor woman, she's miserable. She doesn't have the, you know, the contact and the snuggles and the, hi, grandma, how are you today? Let's make some cookies together or whatever. They don't have that healthy living. It's just malaise. So older people are dying faster than usual too because of that. Right. And, and then kids are growing up. My son has, uh, has had really 
negative reactions to lockdown. It took months for yeah. us to notice it, but it's yes. really worried us because he gets angry now in ways that he yeah. didn't before. Yeah. And of course, I mean, he was four, he's turned five a few months ago. And wow. I just think, how long will this go on? That his interaction with adults will be to A, be afraid of them, or yeah. B, in his nursery, that they look like Darth Vader. Yeah. Um, I just, I do wonder why there hasn't been more voice, not just within the media, but governments pushing for social psychologists to speak yeah. out. Even if it's in disagreement with their procedures, I think it would have done our societies a great positive measure to hear the voices of social psychologists or just psychologists to say, this is what we need to start thinking about. And another thing that yeah, has sure. come up in my own work has been, uh, how to put this gently, <laughs> the refusals that we have to accept death as a society. And I don't mean, you know, that we should be cheering on the death of our grandparents, no, but to understand that a lot of this fear factor that we've been flung into is uh, predating on our unresolved philosophical issues as a society yes. to embrace the reality of death. I give you an yes. example, and it's a very personal example, but I will sure. use it. Sure. Um, I had a beautiful son in 2007 who died seven weeks later. And in dealing with the, his death, I, you know, it was awful, but of course. I read literature, so much literature. At one point, I was at the Welcome uh, Collection in London researching deaths from the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. It didn't take me more than oh, an article to realize that this was normal. Back in yes. not even a hundred years ago, people yes. lost often almost all their children, sometimes yes. all their children. Which is why they had so many, because because it, it, you had to have a lot to make sure you had a few. Exactly. And yeah. as we know, uh, children, I mean, it sounds horribly pragmatic and crass, but it's the truth yeah. that yes. uh, societies, um, even to this day, have children as a means of an old age installment plan. You know, yes. you have of course. children to take care of you. Okay. Yes. And I just kept thinking in these months, because, you know, I call, you know, 2020, I said, was the second worst year of my life, the worst year being my son's death. Now, I kept thinking, but what is this negation of death? Because the one thing I had to come head to head with in 2007 was that we die. So I got, you know, I, I yes. read and one day, months later, I told a friend, I said, you know, I'm very lucky. And he was too, in the sense that he had seven healthy, happy weeks of life. He died, but he had that. Now, go to many places on the planet, even within our own countries, where poor people are dying of preventable diseases and don't right. have health care. Okay. And my friend said to me, but you can't think like that. And I said, but I can, because that is how I'm coping with this. You see, yeah. I don't think that I should be exceptional to something that the world's population is living through. And I had to really do a lot of work about death. It was very this and that philosophical. Yeah. I mean, it was even yeah. Buddhist at a certain point. But I do wonder why, in the face of this very frightening pandemic and our knowledge and media, I mean, we all have internet. So all the things that you and I are saying Yes. People who are having a fight right now on my Facebook page are free to look up. I will also link to your work. But I'm just thinking, you know, 
what is it about our society that it's pushing away death and saying I had someone tell me a good friend actually said well you're not locked down you're free to go and see your doctor and to get food and I was like that's what you call freedom that's not living (laughs) you're so afraid of death you aren't living yeah I think that there's a lot in there about especially when I look at my family in India their way of handling this is diametrically opposed to the people arguing on my wall right now. Uh, First of all, you talk to anyone from Southeastern Asia and they will point to dengue fever, malaria deaths. They're like, this is child's play. This is nothing. Yes, they've they've already learned as a culture to face death. Exactly. And I I am just growing despondent that we are entering into this more dystopic yes. time. Like I was like, yes. 2021, I had a few bad words to say for 2020. Okay, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people did. Uh, and now I had a freak up the other day, literally. I was like crying when I woke up yesterday because I thought, oh my God, this is 2020 Groundhog Day, right? Where's Bill Murray? <laughs> yeah, yes. What what do you are, are see? We just gonna re, are we going to re, are we going to repeat 2020? You're saying exactly. I mean, yes. what is the way out of this? How are we going to learn? Yeah, uh, I I I have uh, been toying with that existential question as well. How do we how do we recover from this? And I think that it'll happen on multiple fronts. I think people will eventually tire of constant fear mongering. I think they will eventually wise up to that. And uh, I am already seeing some signs of that. I flew out to California uh, over Christmas holiday to to wish my mother well on her journey to the afterlife. She passed away over Christmas. So, um, and I noticed that on the um, on the plane there were about uh, or uh, over the holidays in America there were about 13 million air travelers, whereas um, the last time I traveled to visit her back in the summer it was more like 2 million. So in other words, people are beginning to travel now. They aren't afraid anymore, right? So in other words, they're getting tired of, the, of, of being locked down all the time. They're beginning to come out. So that's one thing. People will fatigue of the constant fear mongering. Another thing is the governments are beginning to react. Even in my own state, the legislatures are beginning to say, we've had enough of these shutdowns. We're taking back control from the governor. We're going to begin to try to open things up again. So there's, there's, you know, societal, you're an anthropologist. People are t- beginning to say, we're coming out. We're tired of being, cl- this isn't living anymore. We're going to start coming out. And then there's the governmental kinds of thing. And then I, then also the information thing I've noticed because of everybody moving to social media and moving towards other means that the ratings on the various television stations are going down. So in other words, we're beginning to communicate. So as information is getting out, I think people like you and I are maybe extreme examples, but you and I are highly informed because we're constantly consuming lots of information. But I think in general, on average, probably people are consuming more information too, which, which I admit about my page. I had no idea when I started my page and that parent, my, one of my parents started the page that it would grow to 50,000 members. I mean, I was amazed. And that was 50,000 members that were tracking me every day, but like there were 40,000 followers. So I would post information and within a day or two, 150,000 people would have seen what I was saying. People were hungry for information. So I think the fear generated the, the curiosity and 
so but now people are getting trained to not necessarily just listen to their local television station they're also gathering information so there are multiple things i i think we're coming through um then the, another nice thing is that um these diseases like covid they go through cycles the first wave is usually the biggest then the next time it's smaller and the next time it's smaller 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 so it will eventually fade naturally by itself anyway and so there are kind of natural multiple natural things that will kind of self-resolve you know i think we as a people as human beings we tend to be overly optimistic i i see an example of this is science fiction um people see Star Trek and Star Wars and they think that, oh, look how advanced we are. And we have all these abilities to do things technologically. So we must be so advanced. We must make our decisions rationally. But as a fellow physicist friend of mine said from Lawrence Livermore Laboratories, he says, Doug, you have to remember we're only just down out of the trees. Um, we, don't, we don't behave rationally, do we? You're an anthropologist and here I am telling you about how we behave as a culture. But as a culture, we don't really behave very rationally. We still are only just down out of the trees. Um, we like to think we should. We'd like to think we were capable of it. But our susceptibility to fear is just, I mean, if we learned a lesson from 2020, that was one of the lessons. I don't think the um, epidemiologists, I, I read several of the studies early on um, that the epidemiologists and sociologists had published about how to use fear to obtain compliance from the public in terms of public health orders and nothing in those articles suggested to me that it would be as successful as it has been and i think they were surprised as well how how successful the fear campaign has been more successful than i think anybody realized and um that, that that's that doesn't um put a shine a good light on us as a culture we seem to be pretty vulnerable uh, and not maybe as sophisticated and mature as we'd like to think we are, as, and rational. We like to think we're rational, but maybe we're more emotional and vulnerable than we'd like to think we are. Well, certainly we're seeing, you know, I've seen people on my wall say things like, well, this is far more dangerous than the flu. And I'm saying to them, well, first of all, the way that the facts are being uh, Reported. The word I'm looking for. Thank you. Recorded. The way that the data is being recorded around COVID from yeah. reports I've read is that the flu data is being messed up and often not reported. That's exactly correct. So what do you say to people who say, but the flu is less contagious? Screamy marks. <laughs> yeah, it's and I think it's too early to make a scientific comment like that. I it's driven by the politics and the media, not the science right now. And science, you know, the scientific method is slow and iterative and tedious. You know, we, we like to think, you know, we watch one hour long Star Trek programs where they have a problem introduced, a solution explored, a solution implemented and a happy ending. And it happens in one hour. And we, we think science works like that. Oh no, science is slow and tedious. It takes years. Uh, it's going to take decades to sort out everything that happened in 2021. It, 
it's slow and meticulous. Well, exactly. Uh, but, it's not like the CSI shows where they're like, he died at nine twenty-three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 and and we, but we're kind of conditioned to that, right? We think idealistically, and we think, oh yeah, we've got this all figured out. <laughs> no way, man. We're only just down out of the trees. We we have a lot to learn. Well, I know you said that people are going more to social media, but isn't yeah. there a downside to this? to this as well because go yes. to my wall i mean seriously yeah. if you want to have an um, interesting drama there i mean people are wrapping themselves up in their own fear by merely yes. repeating the fear over and over and over yeah it's like um there are people that have become like addicted to it and uh, that was one of the things i noticed on my page there are people that it doesn't matter what the facts are they they need their daily dose of fear it's like a stimulation thing and um, it, it's, it's a sad, sad situation. That was one of the things I also noticed, um, you know, originally when I started the page, the whole idea was just to post, post the data. And I was just only posting my models and my analyses and what the data were coming out. Uh, a lot of raw data. I like to keep the data as raw as I can so that it's the least subject to bias that way. Mm -hmm. And, um, one night I was feeling kind of depressed. I mean, I was, I was been modeling, you know, people dying all day, right? <laughs> I'm looking at numbers. And in fact, I even think I was looking at Italy that day and noticing the huge numbers. And it was really depressing. And you know, imagining all those poor old people suffering to death is not a very fun topic. And I was feeling a little down depressed. I wasn't sleeping too well that night. And so I just, I pulled out my Bible and I read Psalm 23 and it was like, wow, that was really comforting. I really like, it made me feel good. So I just posted a copy of it on my page. And within minutes, I had 50, 100 people within a day, 1,000 people that were saying, wow, thanks for posting that. That really, really touched me, and it made, it, 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 um, uh, made me feel so much better. And then I posted a, a story about my daughter, Nellie. She's so cute. You know, Down syndrome children, they're just bubbly, happy children. They, you know, she's just a great emotional support. And I posted a story about her, and like within a day, I had something like 20,000 people making comments how much they liked it. And I realized that, yes, there's all this fear and malaise, but people are hungry for a little hope and a little comfort. And so they were coming to my page, not just for the data, but also for the, the light at the end of the tunnel and for a little happiness and a little joy. And who, who can not laugh and be happy about puppies, you know, or, or kittens or, or Nellie, you know, Nellie is, she's, she dresses herself all up and acts silly and cute and everybody this, how can you not laugh? How can you not be happy? And so a, a bright light. So the, 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 I've learned some social, uh, social anthropology this year too. Uh, when you have high levels of fear, you also need high levels. You need uh, access to hope and joy and love and make sure you hug somebody you love every day. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned that you have these, a five-year-old son, man, five-year-old children, sons, man, they need to be climbing trees and skinning their knees and playing with their friends and building tree forts and, and goofing off, you know, and if, if I had a parent, I have three children. I have uh, my oldest daughter, Nellie, and then two sons. If my children were that age, I would make sure they were playing with other children and you'd have to find other parents that were also not afraid, but make sure that they play, you know, the likelihood of them catching it is low. The likelihood of them getting really sick from it, if they do catch it, is really low. And the likelihood of them dying from it is even lower. On my page, I put the statistics for the entire United States. And in the last two months, 
Children 14 years and older, we've had only 10 deaths in the entire country due to COVID. And those are with COVID, right? There are almost always some comorbidity that causes that. And so if your kids are generally healthy, don't deny them the emotional nurture they need. You're only creating a neuro- neurosis for later. So that would be- well, It would be on par, wouldn't it, to telling people with children to not drive on the highway because they could get in a car wreck where those deaths- I've, I've done that calculation and actually showed that exact calculation on my page. And, and oh, that's why I, I tell people, that. I even say, drive carefully. Uh, somebody in my own state, they, they lived in a county called Hamilton County. And they say, Dr. Frank, I'm afraid to go out. I'm afraid to go to the store. And I said, well, are you afraid to drive? And they said, no. And I said, well, let's do the calculation. And I calculated in their county, they were more likely to die of a car accident than from COVID. So if they're not afraid to get in the car and drive to the grocery store, they should not be afraid of COVID. It was something at, at the time, it was something like fivefold higher risk from driving than from COVID for them. So it, it, they need to be rational about it. If fear is real. You shouldn't deny fear. You know, if you're scared of f- spiders, you're scared of spiders, you can acknowledge it, but you need to recognize that it's irrational and, and try to face your fear and, and act accordingly. So I always tell people that I'm not, I'm not telling you to go to the grocery store and kiss every other one of the customers. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm saying drive carefully. I'm just like you're not afraid to uh, drive, but I wouldn't tell you to go drive recklessly. Just drive carefully. So go out, interact with your society, live your life, drive carefully, be smart. Don't be irrational. Don't kiss everybody you meet in the grocery store, but don't be afraid to go to the grocery store either. Well, that's great. Thank you so much. This has been the best. And I've got to say, is your tie the periodic table? Is yes, it is. It's the, yeah. the periodic table. Yeah. Uh, oh, the, I love the, it. The mother who started my page, Dr. Frank Models, is also the one who gave me this. She was one of, the mother of one of my students at, at school. And I, I cherish it. I've been wearing it for years because uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a sentimental thing. But yeah, I'm a for the longest I'm a time, I thought your last name was Frank. I thought you were Frank Models. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting <laughs> name, Dr. Models. So I was calling you Dr. Models for a few months. And then I was <laughs> like, right. okay, that's not his name. But no. I got it. Yeah. I'll send you the link when I get this up. I really appreciate it. If you can, send me your bio, and I'll just add a blurb at the beginning to properly introduce you. No and thank you so much. This has been brilliant. God, sanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate it. And I... I never say no to uh, an interview if I can help it. And I especially appreciate your invitation because you, you said yourself, you're from the left. You're very much to the left. Well, I'm a very conservative person. I'm very much to the right. I saw that. And yet here we are having a very polite, very productive, very reasonable discussion to human beings. I, I'm not saying, oh, I hate you. You're evil. You're not saying you hate me. I'm evil. Here we are having a very, I would call it a loving conversation, a very respectful conversation. And we probably disagree on some things, but you know what? I bet you if we discuss those topics, we could agree to disagree respectfully. And, And instead of just saying, well, you're right and I'm wrong, we'd probably say, well, now, why do you think that? And we could explore together and maybe our positions would become more nuanced because of our healthy interaction. And that is one of the things I've really strove to have on my page is healthy interactions. If people, people, all opinions are welcome, but I expect rational um, 
respectful discussions. And I, I love our discussion. You know, I, I, I have, Me too. Uh, you know, I, I love it that, that we can be from different uh, parts of the world, that we can come from different political viewpoints, but yet here we are. I'd love to have dinner with you sometime and my children play with your children and let's, let's live together in love and respect. Thank you.